0: So let's go to Philippians again. Do y'all know that's what recreation means, right? That is what, what, have you ever seen that before? Yeah, uh, yeah, your vacations are supposed to, you know, our activity is supposed to be recreational. If you try to play a game with my wife, it may not be recreational. Mm -hmm. She's pretty competitive. That's not not that bad, <laughs> but seriously, no, it's not that bad. <laughs> Creation, okay. I gotta get on. I gotta get on topic, people. I gotta get on topic. My wife is not here to keep me in line. Philippians. It's a letter of Paul to the Philippian church. Philippians, okay. So remember how Paul's letters work, okay? The, first of all, the Bible's got an Old Testament, the New Testament. You got thirty-nine books here, twenty-seven books here. This is about two-thirds of the book. This is about one-third of the book. you got four Gospels. Then you got the book of Acts, which acts like a history book. And then you get all the letters, and we start with the letters of Paul. Paul's letters start with Romans, and that's the longest letter that he wrote to any church, all the way down to the smallest letters that he wrote. So Romans is the longest. 1 Corinthians is the next longest. 2 Corinthians is the next longest. All the way down until you get down to... 2 Thessalonians, which is the smallest letter he wrote to a church. Then it goes back up to the longest, but this time it's the longest he wrote to a person. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, all descending order, smaller, smaller, smaller. Then we get into what everybody calls the general letters, okay? Just the everybody else, the Peters, the Johns, the Judes, and all that, and then you get Revelation. That's our... Uh, trying to help you all when you... From now on, we say in church... Oh, I'm erasing this, and y'all are trying to write it down. Ah, okay, Old Testament, 39, two-thirds. I think that's what I had up there. Okay, so Philippians is kind of sandwiched in the middle of Paul's letters in the New Testament. These letters are very short. I mean, they are only a couple of pages in the Bible. Um, Paul's writing this letter from jail prison epistle, we call it, prison letter. I want to tell you about some ways to read the New Testament, ways that we should read it, okay? We should read the New Testament these ways. Number one, and we've already talked about this, so I will not spend a lot of time on it, but I will explain it briefly. We should read the New Testament or the Bible in general within appropriate contexts. If somebody walks in on the middle of your conversation and they hear you say something and they haven't heard the last hour of your discussion and all they hear is that bold statement you made, that may skew their view of the conversation you're having and they may misquote you. Politicians, they do it all the time on the news. Where they, they just catch one thing they say that's going to be a "gotcha moment, but they didn 't hear the other 30 minutes that they were the other 30 minutes make this bold statement kind of in, you know calm it's not so uh, ridiculous or extreme, but, but when you just quote that one thing, well then when you take a statement, whether it 's written or spoken out of context, uh, its original situation in life then you get a pretext, a lie. So we need to read the Bible within appropriate contexts. I want to say that there are four big ones, so I'll make this little A, B, C, D. I want to make sure I do this right. My wife's not here. She always teases me because I will be in the middle of discussion with the kids, and when I'm trying to give them info about why they shouldn't want to do whatever it is they're about to do, Dad gets going like this. A, two. Say, you know, it's like, I mean, B, A and B. I go A and then two or one, B, you know, so I'm going to stay on letters, okay? So this is coherent. A, canonical context. Don't be afraid of that word. Remember, this is one end. This is not like a canon boom. This is canon like a rule or a standard, Okay? Michael Jordan, LeBron James, maybe Larry Bird. I don't know. It depends on who you are. These are are canonical. These are the canon of NBA basketball players, right? They're on the Mount Rushmore. They are the standard of basketball players, right? Okay. Canon means a rule or standard. A lot of Christians wrote a lot of things in the first century, Think about it, a hundred years. A lot of Christians wrote a lot of things. They didn't all make it into the Bible. The 27 works in the New Testament are the canon. The 39 in the old are the canon. The 66 works in the Bible, prophecy, poetry, law, story, they are the canon, the rule, the standard. So when we read the Bible within appropriate context, what that means is, is that Scripture needs to be allowed to interpret other Scripture. If you read one verse in the Bible and you just have it by itself, it may seem like pretty extreme. But if you consider all of the rest of Scripture, okay, so for instance, someone says the Bible promotes slavery because once it says, slaves obey your masters. Well, In its context, canonical context, that is not true. That is a skewed perspective. For instance, God created everybody in his image. That implies that everybody has equal dignity. The Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. Respecter of persons. No respect of persons. Right? He He shows impartiality. So God doesn't see people as different classes. In addition to that, we have the whole Exodus thing, don't we? What's God doing in Exodus? Freeing slaves powerfully from their oppression. We have Paul and Philemon, where, Paul, where Philemon's slave has run, has run away and could be stoned or could be fined or could be flogged or could be whatever, something severe, but he ends up in prison with Paul. Paul, he ends up becoming a convert to Christianity. And then Paul sends him a sort of, I don't know, leaning letter. Kind of leans on Philemon. He's like, hey, I found your runaway slave. Isn't it awesome God saved him? That implies, like, you know, let's not be too harsh on him. Man, he's made a great convert. Whew, he sure is helpful to me in this prison. I don't know what I'm going to do when I send him back to you. I'm going to send him back to you. I don't know what I'm going to do for a guy. I mean, this guy is really good. But I'm, I'm going to get him back to you because I know you need him. But what well, would be great if I had a Onesimus, man. I'd... All right, anyway, here he comes. Okay, so you get the idea. So what's Paul doing? Okay, I know what the rules are. I know what the standards are. I understand the, the law of the land. But in truth, Paul is asking him, Man, follow Christ here. This guy's your brother. He says, receive him as a brother. In other words, don't do the flogging, crucifying, whatever. God's changed this man's life. He's a brother in Christ. But he's really pushing on him to move on past that whole slave distinction. Anyway, I don't want to litigate the whole slavery and the Bible thing tonight. I just want to say, we need to read the Bible within appropriate context. Just because there's a verse in the Bible that says this over here, doesn't mean the Bible endorses anything. You need to read it... In its context. And the context is, first of all, the whole Bible. Okay, the whole Bible. Canonical just meaning all the the actual works that are inspired by the Lord. Okay? Then we need to read it in its literary context. Okay? It matters, for instance. It matters. Okay? Ryan was actually in my English class for a couple of years. When I went to Huntsville one time to do the uh, Region 6 or whatever uh, deal, I was the only male English high school teacher in the room. And there was about 100 people there. So it was already kind of awkward. Then, beyond that, they were standing up and saying, Hi, my name is Julie. I teach English 1 at Huntsville High School hi, my name is Deborah, I teach English 2 at whatever. And then it was, hey, I'm Sean, teach English 1, English 2, English 3, English 4, and 7th grade. (laughs) Someone yelled out, you are the English department. (laughs) Okay, anyway, so hyperbole is a literary device It's basically just a fancy word for exaggeration. If you speak hyperbolically, if you speak with hyperbole, you are exaggerating, okay? Okay, we need to read the Bible within an appropriate literary context. For instance, when Jesus says, if your hand offends you, in other words, if you might steal from your neighbor... He said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. We need to read the Bible within its appropriate literary context. Jesus is practicing hyperbole. He is trying to make a point through exaggeration. And people with general common sense and any kind of cultural literacy know that. When your parent says, I told you, 42 times, no. Nope. You are not supposed to say, I only counted three times. That'll get you a belt in my house when I was a kid. That's not something you say. I told you 42 times, no means I told you a lot. I told you more than I should have or whatever, okay? That is exaggeration. That's called hyperbole. When we read the Bible, we should read it within appropriate literary context. If, if the passage is poetry, if the passage is a narrative, it matters. For instance, it's a really big deal that the Bible is actual. If you think of the Bible as one big grand story, it's really good literary work that the Garden of Eden starts at the beginning of the book, and then we see that same tree of life... And that same imagery of God dwelling with humanity over here at the end of Revelation in 21 and 22. That's how, that's how good stories and movies begin and good books begin, right? You have an exposition. Oh, look, he and her are there having a picnic at the park, their dog, the frisbee, everything's great. Now, if that was it, you wouldn't have a story. If that was all, you'd just be like, that was a memory. But it wouldn't be a story. If you went to the movies and you saw people doing that and they just did that for two hours, you wouldn't stay. Why? Because we love conflict. Because stories involve conflict. Plots have conflict. Something happens. There's terrible weather. Someone intervenes. There's violence. There's something that happens, okay? A truth is told that changes everything, whatever. And so then, through the rest of the story, it's about resolving, dealing with conflict, getting helpers to help you, all of that. Then the conflict reaches a climax. And then it's over, right? And at the end, things are, the balance is either restored or something new happens. Well, in the Bible, we have this God is with Adam and Eve in the beginning. And then over the great arc of the Bible, we have these five great acts. We have creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and then we have the church, which scene one is the New Testament and their are people, and you and I are scene two or three. Okay, that's, that's, that's what the Bible is. One big grand story with five big acts in it. Okay, and the first one and the last one, the last part of the last one, they, this one sums up nicely in many ways how uh, things that were begun in the beginning of the story. We should read the Bible as a story. Now, that doesn't mean that it, that, that, that it didn't really happen. It means, though, that God didn't sing us a song. God didn't sculpt something out of clay or, or, or work something out of clay. He gave us a book. He wrote us some stuff, okay? And a whole bunch of it is story. And so there is a way to think of the Bible As one grand story. And since I've gone ahead and done that much. Maybe you should write that down. Creation is the first act. The fall of humanity. Is the second great act. These two acts happen at the very beginning of the book. Bang, bang. This is the exposition. As literature professors would say. This is the introduction of conflict. Then God sets out to rectify the problem here, deal with the conflict through Israel. He creates a relationship with Abraham and we get through the whole Abraham, Isaac, Jacob cycle. We get through Moses and the prophets. We get through David and Solomon. We get through exile, losing the land, being restored to the land. And that whole story, that whole, that whole act takes up most of the Old Testament. Then we have Jesus, one Jewish person, who is coming and doing everything that Israel as a nation was supposed to do, becoming a light for the Gentiles, being the royal priest, doing the things that God had started to do with Israel and attempted to do through them, he accomplishes it. Finally then, we want to call this fifth act the church. And when we do that, we have to say like scene one would be the writing of the New Testament. Scene two... Maybe you want to say scenes 2 through 10, whatever. Scene 2 is church history. And then scene 3 is the consummation, which we read about in Revelation. So when you read the Bible, you read it within its appropriate literary context. Am I dealing with a story? Is this history here? When When Luke says... In, in his gospel that, that in, the, so in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar that uh, a census was taken, we can go to extra Bible sources and look and find out from a Roman historian named Tacitus that sure enough, Tiberius Caesar lived in that time, that they did, do a, they did take census and that sort of thing, and we can verify it. And so... When the Bible wants to be taken literally and historically like that, we should. When the Bible wants to be understood in some other literary way, like for instance, exaggeration, don't please cut your hand off, get the point, okay, then we need to do that. Read it in its appropriate context. When I went to seminary, look, I went to, I went to the Church of God seminary. I went to a Baptist seminary. I went to a Methodist seminary. I went to a Christian church or Disciples of Christ seminary. I've been to four seminaries, of my, I'm sorry, Assemblies of God. I've been to five different denominational seminaries through the course of my academic work, in addition to some secular schools. Those seminaries, I've been to five, nobody ever said, hey, when you become a pastor, here is the apparatus you need when they come to the altar and respond because they're struggling with theft. Here's the little guillotine so that you can cut off their... Here's the process. That, they didn't do that. And, and I went to all different kinds of seminaries. Nobody is taking Jesus literally there. We are taking him seriously. He's making an important point. It really matters that we shouldn't do this. Do what it takes. But we need to read it within appropriate literary contexts. We also ought to, as much as we can, read it in appropriate historical contexts. I'm going to explain that later. I don't want to get on that too much. And then also theological. And that just means we ought to care about the what what the, what the author was trying to say. What, they, what the audience that, that he was writing to would have thought was possible. That's really what we're getting at here. The ideas about God, the circumstances of their life, that sort of thing. We should read within appropriate context. All of those matter. Now some of us, we don't know if we're getting it all right when we do that or not. I'm not suggesting you're going to have all these answers today. I'm just saying these are things that we can think about. These are things that we can ask. In fact... What you can do when you're reading Scripture is just begin to ask some of these questions. Okay, I'm reading about joy. What else does the Bible say about joy? That would be thinking about the canonical context. You can ask yourself, am I reading a law code, poetry, a story? What what type of literature am I reading when I'm reading Paul's letters? How do Paul's letters differ from Psalms? how does proverbs differ differ from revelation that kind of thing historical when i read about the pharisees maybe i can get a bible dictionary or maybe i can just google it or maybe i can call my pastor or something like that and say hey tell me what you can about the pharisees you know why why are these guys always you know you know hassled, you know, ha- hassled by jesus these guys aren't hassled so much. I think he's a D anyway. So if you do, let me do this real quick. Let me just do historical for a minute. In five eighty seven BC, so almost six hundred years before Jesus was born, the Babylonians and their king Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and wiped it out and destroyed the temple, the first temple that Solomon built. Then he took a bunch of the people in Israel away in exile to Babylon. But then the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. God vindicated Israel. He said to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, I'm going to use these people, but to, to judge you, but they're going to, if they you know, there's consequences. So sure enough, the Persians overthrow them. And the Persians let the Israelites come back home. The Jews they let them come back home. But then, Alexander the Great and his Greeks conquer the known world, virtually. Except for things like China. The known world, certainly the Western world, and even the Middle East and beyond. Even to India there, almost to India. And so, the Greeks take over Israel. And then when he dies, the Egyptians, one of Alexander's generals, Ptolemy of Egypt... And another general, Seleucus of Syria. because These countries successively take over the land of Israel. And in 167 BC, 160 something years before Jesus was born, a man named, you don't have to write all this down, I'm just telling you the history. You may have never known it or never heard it. Have y'all ever tried to pronounce a word, like push the, the Google, like on Google and had the little, okay, yeah. So they're going to tell you there's two ways to do this one, okay? I prefer this one, okay? You can say, you can say it like this city Antioch. You could say Antiochus. Uh, I tend to say Antiochus, and all that is is because there's an accent there in Greek. So I, I read it from that Greek way and not the English way. It looks like Antiochus, which is not wrong, but if you're coming from the Greek part, it's Antiochus, okay? And then this is Epiphanes, okay? This dude is the king of Syria, or the Seleucid Empire, and he wanted the Jews. Here's what happened. Syria's up here. Israel's down here. Egypt's down here. When Alexander died, one of his generals got this area. One of his generals got this area. This guy had the upper hand for a while. Then these guys got the upper hand. He wanted Israel as a buffer state. He wanted some space, okay? If we were having a, a, a horrible war with South America, we might want Mexico as a buffer. You know, so that, We want that. I'm not saying that would be a wise or a, certainly not a righteous move. I'm just saying that's kind of, by analogy, that's what it would be like, okay? So anyway, Syria says, like, we want, we want, we want space. We want a buffer, okay? Plus, we want to protect... Uh, <coughs> There's some, there's some land and some resources here. So here's what he did. Now, I know this sounds insane, but this is what he did. He said, I need these people to know, and this wasn't common back then. At this time, it was. He thought, I'm going to go in here, and I'm going to win the hearts and minds of everybody, because I'm going to just do away with this old local religion stuff, and I'm going to set them up as, I'm, I'm going to set myself up as. The one that should be worshipped. We obviously conquered you. We're obviously stronger than your gods. I'm going to set myself up as God, and that way, then within a generation or so, we'll stamp all that other mess out. He wasn't counting on the tenacity of the faith of the Jewish people. Okay, he wasn't. But he didn't know. He didn't know any of that. So he he goes in. He sacrifices a pig on the altar. The whole okay on the yeah. Yeah, so this is, that, that is, he makes it, it's called desecration, okay? The abomination that makes desolate, or the abomination of desolation. So in other words, like, this thing is unclean now, it's useless. I mean, it's, it's the same, it is, it, is the, uh, it is the building structural equivalent, I'm sorry, to, of, of, of raping a young woman. or that, that, That's what it would have been. Because now that, that I'm talking about back then, I mean back then, that's the way that that was it was like, we won, get over it, and now, you know, we're in charge. That's the way this was supposed to be. Now he didn't know that they were just going to lose their minds and not quit. And since he did since they didn't, there was a group of guys with this name, Maccabeus, the Maccabees, and these guys were not playing around. And they said, "Okay, buddy." And they decided to practice guerrilla warfare. And they ran this guy out of Israel. And they they released uh, Jerusalem. They freed Jerusalem on this day. And that's why. I'm not spelling that right. Hanukkah. That's why we have Hanukkah. That was the new festival in the Jewish calendar because of the Maccabean revolt against this guy. Okay? What year was that? That was in 164. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay? B.C. This is before Christ. Okay? Now, so all that sounds good. Right, so they're free and they got some independence for a while, but then in 63 BC, the Romans show up. Did you know that since, oh man, I can't remember how far back it's like, it's like since the time of like Solomon or something. Every 44 years, and a standing army has marched through Palestine to invade somebody. Average, on average, every 44 years since the time of Solomon. Okay? I'm I'm not saying every 44 years, I'm saying average. On an average, that's how many times it's happened. So a guy named Pompey goes into Jerusalem and he does some similar things that Antiochus did. And now, by the way, at this point now, the Persians had let the Jews rebuild that temple that had been broken and just desecrated. And they had, the Maccabeans had actually cleansed it and all that. Started over. But in this time then, um, he, he desecrates it again. Not the same destruction, but desecrates it. And sets himself up as, you know, God or whatever. And this time, though, there's a revolt just like the Maccabians, but it's crushed and nobody wins. The Jews don't win. And in six years, 6 BC, a guy named Judas the Galilean tries, like a Messiah's figure, to come and crush them and revolt against the Romans and overthrow them and all of that. And it's brutally crushed. Okay. And so this goes on periodically. So the reason I tell you all this is reading the, reading the New Testament in it, or the Gospels, let's say, in its historical context. If you read the Gospels in their historical context, what you really have with these characters are different responses to Rome, the situation. Because if you're a Jewish person in the first century... You're expecting Yahweh to show up, the covenant God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses. He's going to come and he is going to wipe out these, you know, pagans, these heathens, these idolaters, right? That's what's going to happen. He's going to wipe them all out. And these are the four responses. You're going to read the Bible, the New Testament context historically. Here they are. Here's your four responses. These people, their answer was revolt. Kill them all. Kill them all. Okay? That was their response. Maybe we can't do it today, but we're going to subvert them. We're going to sneak around. We're going to hit them where we can. Privately. But eventually... We're going to come at them. We're going to to get them. Okay? So there's revolutionary ideas here. Now sometimes, again, they're meeting in secret places and it isn't really an open war, but it's seething under the surface. These people's response was, that temple that got rebuilt, that's not God's temple. Herod the Great, who's a collaborator with the, the, the Romans, is the king And this this thing here, this is some kind of sham, Israel. Run to the hills. This is the the, uh, escape response. Let's go out here ten miles outside of Jerusalem and watch when God rains down sulfur and fire like Sodom and Gomorrah on Jerusalem. Because that's not God's holy city with God's man installed as king, and that temple is not Solomon's temple. That is a that man on the throne is a usurper, and that temple is a pretend temple. That's not that. So that was their resp- response. Head to the hills. Okay, get out of here. These people were like Vichy France in World War II. These were the collaborators. These were the people. Who had status. And so they didn't want to disrupt everything. Okay. The Chinese take over. And they make Mike Allison the mayor. (laughs) Because Mike was like, look, I don't like these Chinese uh, taking over. But I don't want to lose my land. asking me to kill anybody. They just want me to collect some taxes from people. Okay? I don't want to lose my land. I've had this for a while. I've worked hard for it. My property. They were going to come down here and burn it all down. They said, all you got to do is collect some taxes from... I need you to tax Houston County. And they were like, that's it? Yeah. And if you'll do this, Mike, forget your land. We're going to give you that guy's land. You know the one we just sent off to the gulag or whatever? (laughs) That... (laughs) We're going to give you their land. Mike, I'm sorry I just made you a traitor. I'm sorry. I, I, just, I needed somebody that I could trust, and I, I know you're not going to do that. So anyway, okay. So, so the Sadducees are the collaborators, the status quo, right? I've got my job. The Romans are, maybe I like them, maybe I don't. But hey, this is the way it's going. I'm going to look out for my family. That's those people. They also don't believe in the resurrection, which shows up in the New Testament, but a lot of times people get hung up on that as if that's what defined them. It didn't. What defined them was their willingness to go along, to get along, or get along, to go along, whatever the hell it is. How do you say that? Go along to get along? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. These people's response was this. Okay. So the temple, we agree with you. That's not really God's, That this things aren't right. And we agree with you, the Romans don't belong here. And we absolutely disagree with you people. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to study God's word. And we're going to be faithful to it. Because perhaps the reason why Yahweh hasn't shown up again is because of these folk. And because of these folk with their violence. And because the people who could make a difference ran away. And maybe what we need to do is stand right here in this Babylon and be like Daniel of old. And we need to study God's Word and we need to practice God's Word. And maybe Yahweh will return to to Israel. Okay? So, that was their response. And so when you want to read the Bible in its appropriate context, historically... One of the big things is this. A lot of, I grew up thinking the Pharisees are the worst. And I've told you all this before. I'm, just, I'm, de, I'm developing a little further tonight. Pharisees were always like the bad guys. Of course, in the Gospels at times, Jesus has very harsh things to say. But I've tried to liken it to you this way. Most of our biggest fights, the big ones, are with family. Okay I mean, I know there's some people who just go like and they're driving down the road and they have road rage and they like to just get out and fight strangers, but most people have a lot of they have their biggest arguments, their biggest blow ups, their biggest fights with family or with best friends, people that are close right That's what they do. okay, you've been on teen sports, sometimes that happens. you've been in a play in a, a troupe you know of, of, of actors sometimes you know. We may fight amongst ourselves, but if they out there try to put one of us down, we tend to to stand up for each other, okay? I can be mad that you're batting 146, but you let those people out there start yelling at you, you, they're going to have a problem with all of us, okay? This kind of thing, all right? We have our biggest fights with our family. Jesus doesn't... These people every now and again come to Jesus. They're in the background. They show up at the Sanhedrin court at the end. These people don't have a whole lot to do with Jesus. These people generally aren't around. These people are hanging around and seeing if they can use Jesus because he's got a lot of following. And every now and again, Jesus has to sort of disabuse them of their ideas and show them that, yeah, you're on the wrong path. But they are attracted to Jesus because he seems to be subverting the the status quo. These people are the closest thing in response in Israel. I mean, at least for one thing, at least they stayed. At least they know that God's kingdom is not going to advance this way. And they also know and are willing to experience and are willing to, to push a bit and resist the powers that be instead of like these guys. And so while they have their problems, and they do, Jesus spends the majority of his time debating and arguing with these people because they're the closest to him in worldview. That's why. So again. At times, in certain areas, it seems like they're light years away. Let me, let me throw it to you this way. Let me, let, me, let me throw it to you like this, okay? So let's say that there is... I don't know what you call them anymore because everybody's the game's changed, but like way back when Baptists, okay? Way back when Baptists. Not, not today Baptists, but like way back when Baptists that were like you the water is critical like you can't be saved without the water. That that Baptist, okay? That one and say like a Methodist or maybe like an Assemblies of God who says like, yeah, we think people we encourage people to baptize in water but, you know, we're not it's not the water that saves anybody and they're like fighting it out, you know they're having these terrible debates and all of that. Okay, These two people, when they're arguing, sometimes they sounded like they hated each other's guts and they were as far apart as they could possibly be. But you you dump them into the cesspool that is, say, Washington, D.C. right now, and these guys are really, really close, okay? You understand what I'm saying? Like, we can fight all this stuff out internally, but when it comes down to it, we have a whole lot more in common than all of those folk. Okay? Does that make sense? That's what's going on here. They had, Jesus has significant issues with the Pharisees. But they're around to argue with him. They're family. They're like at least in the game. And they at least care about the law. And they know something's up with that temple. And they're not running away. And they're not trying to kill the Romans. So they got, they got quite a bit going for them. Despite all the negative things the Bible said. When we read the New Testament or the Bible, we ought to try to read it in its historical context. And then its theological context. Sometimes we're really, we're really bad about reading our contemporary ideas back into the Bible. Instead of thinking about what the first audience would have heard. Okay, like, People are really bad about this. When I was at TCU, they were doing this. Where it was like, we would, <laughs> they would read 20th century stuff into the first century. And it was like, those people didn't think like that. They weren't thinking that way. Now, you might want to apply the Bible that way in your preaching. Okay, but don't. that's not what the Bible was. So in other words, they taught us at school exegesis. Ex means out of. It means that you derive meaning out of the text. You read it, and the meaning is there, and you derive it out of. But what a lot of people do... Hang on. This is hard to spell. Jesus which is reading into the Bible what's already in your head. So you go looking for what you already believe and you read it into the Bible. Instead of going to the Bible and letting the Bible, let the meaning come out of it to you and even change or shape everything in your life or even subvert you exegesis is what we were taught. Biblical exegesis. Wrestle with the text. Pray over the text. Study the text. Look in all of its, Search these contexts. And let the meaning, draw out the meaning from Scripture. Don't come to the Bible and say, I already know that it's okay to do this, and now I'm going to read it, and I found it in there. (laughs) Okay. That's called eisegesis. Reading it into. And the reason why is because that is the Greek word for, well, I mean, it actually looks like that. But uh, that's the Greek word for out. And that's the Greek word for into. Eisegesis reading it into, exegesis reading it out. So that's what we're doing. When I preach it in the pulpit, the work I've been doing before I get to preach in the pulpit is the product, I pray, of Exegesis. I've been reading a passage of Scripture or a section of Scripture or a Bible work, a book, and I am, with the help of the Spirit and the tools He's given me, drawing the meaning out of it instead of coming to it with a preconceived idea of what I think is right and then just reading it in there and finding it. That's the reason why a lot of people, all of us, including me, that's why we have so many discussions and disagreements within the church because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and often we find in the bible what we want to find instead of you know letting the bible find us. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So Philippe, so we want to read for appropriate context. Anything else? I've already kind of said with as little distortion as possible. I don't want to say that anymore. We're dealt with that. Um I've already said without the assumption that we already know what it's going to say. Oh, can I say this too? We need to read the Bible without the arrogance that we own that text. That we have a right to that one. Let me explain what I mean by that. So, so like, Pentecostal people will read Acts 2 as if that's their book. That's, their, that's, that's, my, that's my text. That's my text. Right. You people don't know what that Bible means. With you don't have a clue what that means. That's not, we're full gospel, we read that that way. Now, I mean, I grew up in that way, so I can tell you all that. I, I'm not making that up or pointing fingers or casting aspersions like that's what they told us. Okay, I know that's what I know they did. That's what he said. Okay. I don't mean every single person in the Pentecostal church, by the way, either. And everybody in the Pentecostal church isn't rude about it, but that is the way that that's the thinking. And so, you know, and then of course, then the Baptists come along and they're like, Well. Well, okay, you, you think you got Luke, well guess what? We got Paul, he's ours. <laughs> he's ours. That First Corinthians 12 through 14 with the gifts and the, yeah, that's us. We got the right, that's ours. And so then the Baptists read First Corinthians 12 with their spectacles, eisegesis. And the Pentecostals read Luke with their spectacles, eisegesis. Instead of, let's go back Pentecostal and read Acts again. I'll give you an example. I'm going to do this. I'm going into the deep water right now. Here we go. Here we go. Okay? I'm going to show you something important. Go look this up online, okay? Read, for instance, the Assemblies of God website. Their statement. It's called the, uh, the uh, well, it's their statement of faith. I forgot what the name is. And I know y'all are thinking, well, I didn't think the assemblies of God were Pentecostal. They are. Oh, I don't sure. know why people in this area. I guess it's because Lufkin is the central, you know, Texas hub of United Pentecostals, but Assemblies of God people, Church of God people are Pentecostal. Look yeah. them up. Go to the Assemblies of God website. It'll say, we're the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world. That big church in Lufkin called Timber Creek, yeah. that's their root. I don't know if they're still there or not, but that's, that's who they were. Okay. The Statement of Faith. If you read their Statement of Faith, there is a number, and I don't know how far it is. Maybe it's 12 or something like that. But go on down that Statement of Faith, and you will see in there this language. The initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking with tongues. That's what their website says. The initial, that means first. That means you're not baptizing the Spirit unless that happens. That's what their statement says, okay? Now, that's what it says. So, if you go read Luke, and when I say Luke, what do I mean? Luke wrote two books. That's why I named my kid Luke. Because My favorite gospel is the gospel of Luke. He wrote that gospel to Theophilus and he wrote Acts to Theophilus. This was book one. This was book two. If you're going to read Luke in the Bible, you got to read both. Every time that somebody is filled with the Spirit in Luke Acts, are you ready for this? The Assemblies of God isn't going to like this and the Baptists aren't going to like this. Are you ready? Nobody's going to like this. Every time in Luke Acts that the Bible, and I say Luke because I'm talking about, I'm not talking about Pentecost. I'm talking about John the Baptist's parents. Remember them? They're in Luke 1. Amen. Mary. Okay, I'm talking about these people. Every time in this work that the Bible uses a phrase similar to that. Do you know what people do? They preach. Sometimes they speak with tongues, but they always do that. My soul does magnify the Lord after she's filled with the Spirit. Elizabeth prophesied. I'm going to read. I, I don't want to get, y'all are going to say, I don't know if he's still it here. It's there. Luke 1. Luke 1, Luke 1, verse 41. Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. And did she speak with tongues? No. What happened? She exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She prophesied. She preached. Then Zechariah. What happens to him? He's filled with the Spirit. What does that guy do? Verse 67 of Luke 1, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Okay? What about the day of Pentecost, preacher? Aren't the assemblies of God people right? On the day of Pentecost, they were all one mind, one accord. Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind filled all the house where they were sitting. Everybody was filled with the Holy Ghost, spoke with other tongues. Sure. Do you know what else happened that day? As soon as they got finished, Peter walked out and said, These people are not drunk as you suppose. They're just filled with the Holy Ghost." You crucified Jesus. God raised Him from the dead. You know what He did? He preached. He prophesied. That's what He did. Uh, Acts 4. Peter wasn't just filled on Acts 2. He was filled in Acts 4. Now that blows both of these people out of the water. Peter is filled with the Spirit three times in the book of Acts. Paul is filled with the Spirit three times in the book of Acts. Peter is filled in Acts 2, 4, and somewhere further down the road. On Acts 2, he's at Pentecost. Filled with the Spirit. Prophesied. In Acts 4, he's at a house or a place and they were all filled with the Spirit and they spoke the Word with boldness and Peter was there and filled the Spirit again. And then, he's filled a third time. Paul, same thing. If you want to make a doctrine, if you want to build a church on a distinctive and you want it to be truly biblical, exegesis, not eisegesis, exegesis, you would want to say, if you want to do this sort of thing, and I don't, but if you wanted to make a rule out of this and say, people that are filled with the Spirit, always prophesy on the Bible, you could you could make that case. You could make a much better case than the assemblies of God does for this. And, frankly, the Baptists do in denying this. Because, in fact, everybody, in fact, Paul says in Corinthians, desire the gifts above all. Especially 22. prophecy. That's right. So if you're if you're somebody who thinks that all these things ceased with the disciples and they only did it then you, you, you got some you got some explaining to do there. Anyhow, so the point is I, I don't wanna I don't want to get into a theological debate. I just poked the bear, I threw the, the you know, I, I just knocked the bee hive down on the ground. All I wanted to do was show you that people on both sides of the aisle are guilty of doing that. And when you are committed to a certain statement of faith, when I was in the church of God, I had to stand in front of a committee and say what I believed and whatever. In the sins of God, you have to do it every year. You have to renew every year. Thank God in the church of God, you didn't have to keep renewing. Because <laughs> so I was like, I'm moving forward in another direction or moving away from that for years and not like I was okay with the idea that the tongues is an evidence, but I didn't like that initial thing because I think Billy Graham was filled with the Holy Ghost, and I know that man didn't speak with tongues. So I read his autobiography. I know that guy was filled with the Holy Ghost. If you're telling me this dude over here that uh, was in my church when I was a kid because he spoke with tongues when he was 17 years old at youth camp one time and lived like the devil every day after that but that guy was filled with the Holy Ghost Billy Graham wasn't because he didn't speak with tongues and that guy did. I don't know what kind of world I'm in. I I don't believe that. I can't believe that. And I think it's the product of this and not this. If you read the Bible, you will discover that the Pentecostals, Assemblies of God, UPCs, Church of God, the, the New Testament books, they hang their hat on when it comes to the baptism of the Spirit. Luke Acts. Their own books Do not attest to the fact that every time people feel the Spirit, they speak with tongues. Three times they did, but every time in Luke Acts that somebody's filled, they prophesy. So if you wanted to build a doctrine around it, you'd probably do a better job doing that. I don't want to build a doctrine around it, but I am saying and I'm just saying that's the product of exegesis, not eisegesis. So both the Baptists and the Pentecostals need to go back to the book again and think about that and why that's so important and what that might mean. So let me move on. I, I, that was, I don't want to get into debates about it. I will debate. I will talk all night long about these theological issues with one or two or five of you. But I want to just try to be productive. But I wanted you to see that's how Jesus kills us in the church. That's how it kills us when you read what you want to read. Well, Mama said that's the way it was. Well, my favorite preacher, oh, well, he said it was like that. And I just bring that to the table. Or I haven't really been reading the Bible all that much, but I've picked up all these ideas from the culture around me and I just obviously assume that's what these, you know, just read it in there instead of letting the Scripture read you. If you put yourself in the Scripture prayerfully, the Spirit will read you. Okay. The identity of the recipients of Philippians. Look with me briefly and i got to quit. Can't do much on Philippians, but that was important about setting up how we're reading the Bible. Philippians. Who is he writing to? It's Paul and Timothy. We talked about them already. He's writing to the saints in Christ Jesus. We've already talked about that, being saints. We've been talking about that for weeks at church on Sunday. But I would like to remind you, this is one of Paul's characteristic sayings. In Christ Jesus, okay? So in other words... Some people characterize themselves as disciples. Some call themselves Christians. Some like to say the word believer. Okay? People have unique vocabulary. When something weird happened when I was a kid, my dad used this word, bizarre. He used it all the time. Instead of saying that's weird, that's crazy, that's dumb, that's strange, he always said that's bizarre. That creeped into my speech. It's with me. In our family, we use this word. Not everybody uses this word. For some of you, it's bizarre to use the word bizarre, okay? That's that's the way it goes. But if you saw something in print or you heard somebody say something and you heard that word, if you've been around us a lot, you might think of our family. When you hear this phrase, this is the way Paul liked to talk about his relationship. Instead of saying, I'm a Christian or I'm a disciple or I'm a believer, he might use all those words. But this is the characteristic way. In Christ Jesus. Okay, in Christ. That's that's his characteristic phrase. So the people he's writing to are saints because God called them to be. They're in Christ, but they're also at Philippi. This is verse 1 of chapter 1. With the overseers and deacons. A lot of people don't realize that even here, this was probably written in 62 A.D., so in the first century, the church has already developed enough to ha- have a need of some organization. We need some at Mount Olive right now. We're growing. And we need that. We ought to do things not haphazardly. We need some organization when it comes to youth, children's, worship team, When it comes to hospitality, helps, teaching, preaching, in everything we're doing, in terms of our missions, in terms of evangelism, in terms of our community presence, we need more of a strategy. We need more of a plan. The apostles themselves needed organization. These guys saw Jesus. Peter walked on the water. They raised the dead. And yet, in the book of Acts, they're preaching along and preaching along and everything's great and then somebody the church is growing and growing and 3,000 were added one day and 5,000 another day and all of a sudden somebody comes along and says hey, hey, hey hey my mom's a widow and I heard Matt's mom's a widow and when, when Matt's mom needed help y'all helped her and y'all aren't helping me and when Daryl's mom needed help y'all helped him but it didn't help Mike. Oh, it's this Trinity thing. That's what it is. <laughs> Y'all are partial to the Trinity widows and not the canard widows. Oh, I see. What you, and that's what started happening. And Peter was like, wait a minute. Okay. How can we be so spiritual and so ridiculous? At the, okay. You know what? You're right. We need help. Stephen... So-and-so, so-and-so, get over here, okay? We're going to ordain you to be deacons, and you're going to look out for that kind of stuff because clearly we can't handle it. It's beyond us. We're not organized enough. And so even in the book of Acts, there is a need for organization because stuff falls between the cracks. And so the overseers and deacons are a part of a developing I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to introduce you to a fancy word here. Ecclesiology. Don't let that fool you or be scared. Don't let it scare you. Ecclesia, which looks like this in Greek. Ecclesia. Ekklesia. ekklesia. It you will spelling. Not Greek anyway. Say that again? I said you will be greater than your Greek spelling. <laughs> good, good, good. I'm trying to find an accent. Uh, so... That means an assembly or a church. So it comes to me in the church. Ecclesiology is the study of the church or a teaching about the church. There is a developing ecclesiology. But the idea of what the church is is morphing and changing and transforming every day. And by AD 62, they are already got deep organization. He's writing to people at the church at Philippi and he actually mentions overseers and deacons. Then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Again, I I can only hit some highlights here, but I would like for you to note. Did you see the distinction? We only believe in one God, but this one God has distinctions within himself. And that's here. There is a Father, there is a Son, there is a Spirit. There are not three gods, there's one God. But... There are distinctions within that one Godhead. There are. Why else say grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? What's the point of doing that? But I would like for you to notice this. That he's willing to call the Creator God the Father, but he's also wanting to call Jesus Lord here. That's important. It's in Philippians, one chapter down the road here, where he's going to say at the name of Jesus that God gave him the name that's above all names. Some people think the name of Jesus is the name above all names. That's not it. The name above all names. Read the passage. At the name of Jesus, every knee bow, tongue confess that he is Lord. That is the name above. He is given the title. In fact, this is actually the, the Hebrew name Yahweh. Psalm 110. Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand Jehovah till I'm. Said unto Adonai. Say it again. Jehovah said yeah. unto Adonai. He did. That's right. Yeah, said unto Adonai. Which means these, these both, then, there's a distinction within them. There, there's an equality. And that's what Philippians 2 says Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, and yet made himself of no reputation. Okay. That's kind of heady stuff, but just, let's just, I'm just throwing it out there. I want this to stick. I think I'm going to try to land on this, and I'll quit for the night. I mean, for the group, and if you guys want to stay, some of you, that's cool. There's a, The word gospel is used in this passage in verse 5. Um, I'll, I'll, let me read it. I thank my God, this is verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Okay. I wrote some stats down for you. And and Matt, you can use this in the ESV concordance. It's G2. The The word gospel is used 96 times in the ESV version of the Bible in the New Testament, in the New Testament. More than half of those 96 times in the New Testament, Paul uses the word. Philippians uses it nine times. And it's G2 in the back of that concordance. Okay? G2. Okay. Gospel. When you think of the word gospel, you probably think of a church word. It sounds like a churchy religious word but it wasn't in Paul's day. O <coughs> Evangelion. If I take the same letters and I make them from Greek and I turn them into English letters, it looks like that. You see this little part right here? <coughs> EU. Think about these words. Think about the word euphoria. What does euphoria mean in English? It's a good feeling. What's a eulogy? A good word about somebody. What is uh, euthanasia? A good death. All of these words in English start with E-U and they mean good. We took that O from Greek and we built these English words. Euphoria is a good feeling. Eulogy is a good word. Euthanasia is a good death. Um, oh, how about this one from the Nazis? Eugenics. Good genes. Okay. All right. EU means good. We borrowed that from Greek to make these English words. For is a base that has to do with feelings. Logos is a Greek word that means Words. Phanos is Greek for death. Uh, Gen has to do with generation. So what we did was we took a, a Greek prefix and a Greek base, put them together and made fancy English words. Evangelion means good news or announcement. Okay? This is what's important though. People think when they hear the word gospel now that that means uh, that's a church word, okay? But when Paul wrote it, it was an announcement of victory, and most often it was associated with Caesar. So when Cunard won the playoffs the other night, there was an announcement in the Graveland Messenger 3 p go back to state again. Yay, right? There was a good announcement of their victory. If you were alive when Caesar was alive, when the Caesars were alive, if you lived in the Roman Empire, you got used to having whatever public... They didn't have email. They didn't even have old newspapers. What they had was, they would set up these posts outside, and they would have these inscriptions, and it would say, you're welcome, Canard." Caesar has defeated those Crockett people and has liberated you from their tyranny, okay? And they would announce the great victory. And Caesar would do this, and it was kind of like propaganda, okay? Paul takes that word away from Caesar and places it firmly in the message about Christ. And what he's trying to do, what he is doing, is politically subversive Because he's saying, that's not really good news. Not the good news that counts. You want to hear good news? You want an announcement of victory? How about the victory over death? How about the victory over Satan? How about the victory over your bondage? How about the victory over war and hate and all that? How about the victory over sin? That victory, that victory, he's calling what Jesus did, What centers on Jesus? Good news, evangelism. Okay, so that's the um, that's what the word gospel means. Um, Go on, on. okay. Quit. I did too much on that. Too much on that exegesis thing. I wouldn't count on that. I got, I got excited. Okay, so the uh, the goal here, my purpose on Thursday night, for my part. I want to see you spiritually formed. I want to see I want to see you grow up into maturity, into Christ. And there are these practices that we've been practicing for centuries now that help us get there. Now the Holy Spirit has to do the work. I can't make the sunshine. I can't make the rainfall. But I can make the plow, I can plow the field. I can remove the rocks. I can run off the varmints. I can. You know, I, there's some things I can prepare the soil. I, I can't make it rain. I can't make it the sunshine. But I can prepare the soil. I want to encourage you this. Sometimes when I get going like this, I want to make sure you, you don't get the wrong impression. I'm trying to throw bits of information at you here and there and hit highlights. You don't have to remember all this stuff. You don't have to have all this stuff. God will speak to you where you are. He will speak to you in language you understand. But that's not an excuse to not press and push and, 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 and strive and go forward as far as we can and clear out as much of the obstacles as we can. That's what we're gonna to try to do. But don't think, well, I don't know about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all that. Well, number one, you can know it. You can know. You can. It's like anything else you wanna do. Everybody in my family's, you know, kinda of DIY, or do it, or do, do, you know, whatever, do it yourselfers or whatever on everything watch a youtube video or whatever and mess around with I mean like, okay well guess what you can do that with the scripture too this is there it is knowable it's not it it, it, it it's 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 not rocket science in the sense that the bible is written clear enough if you make the a- actual effort you can know it. you can know things and guess what you don't have to do it by yourself God has given us the church. He has given us help. And he has promised us that as we are faithful over a few things, he will make us ruler over many. He has said if we will obey the few things that we do know, if we will walk in the light we have now, God will open more light to us down the road. I didn't know about the Sadducees and Pharisees when I first was called into the ministry. I didn't know any of that either. And so... uh, God has taken me on a journey. And so I've, I've learned quite a bit. And guess what too? Another thing I should say. There's things that I think, you know, I left that back there. And sometimes on my journey, God will send me on back. I'm going to show you this as my, as my conclusion. And when you all hear some of this on Sunday, you just act like it's the most brilliant thing you never heard before in your life. Because you've already heard it. Some of you people are doing this. That's where you were. And you think that's where you are. And you think, here I go again. I'm back in the same place. All these years trying to do right. All this time. And then here I am again. I'm just back in the same old, same old. And there's a lot of believers that Satan tricks you, whether it's your understanding of the Bible, Whether it's your ability to pray, whether it's serving the Lord, whether it's your temper, whatever it is, okay? Why do you think that? And maybe some of you are. But my guess as pastor and friend of many of you people is that instead of being in a circle like that, that your life is actually doing something like this. And it may feel like I'm in the same old place, I you're not. You've made progress. It may feel like I've been around these bins before, and you probably have. But you're on a journey, and you're making progress. And maybe the children of Israel were here, and they wanted to go there, and that would have been the fastest way. And maybe God said, I want you to go here and 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 and there. Okay? zigzag. Okay. And you say, wouldn't that have been the fastest path? Yes. And if you had gone that path for one thing, you would have hit major resistance right there and turned around and left. You weren't ready for that. You weren't mature enough, Israel. You weren't ready for that. God did you a favor. You also disobeyed a bunch of times. But guess what? Despite all of that, When you were here and you thought you were nowhere, you were a long way down the road from where you were. And some of you write, this is where you were, and this feels like it's a similar place, and you can draw a straight line to it. It seems like, yeah, I've been around this before. But church, you've made progress. God's taking you where you need to go. It may not be the pace you want to go. You may feel like, why do I have to learn this again or whatever. There are things in my life, lessons in my life, things that I should have already learned, did already learn, that I have to go back and revisit. That does not mean that I'm in a circle and I've made no progress, that I'm nowhere. I know things now, I've experienced things now that I didn't back then. And I may feel like, well, now I'm back here again and I'm getting this opposition. Yes, you are. But you have those experiences. You have those scriptures. You have those people. You have these situations in your life that, that, that have accumulated since then. And you're not the person that you were then. There is growth. And I want to encourage a bunch of you out there that this is more of what your life looks like. Father, some of us think, don't like to read, don't understand what I'm reading bored when I'm reading, scared to read, afraid I'm going to think and believe the wrong things. The devil has all kinds of tricks, all kinds of traps, all kinds of games and deceptions. Truth is that we are spiritually formed into Christ, into the people you call us to be as we soak in this scripture. So what if we're not getting it all right? So what if we have to learn it two or three or five or ten times? This is the path. This is the way. This is how we get there. Father, I pray in Christ's name that you will give people the vision to see the goal, to see who they are in Christ and who they're going to be forever in eternity and to start leaning in to that vision now and beginning to practice those habits, those dispositions, gaining that wisdom that they need to be the royal priest that you've called them to be. You said that if we would present our bodies to you a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto you, this was our spiritual worship, our reasonable service, then you said we shouldn't be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind And this was the reason why. So that we could approve the excellent. So that we could know the good will of God. So that when we were put in a situation and we didn't know what to do, or other people didn't know what to do, we would be able to discern your will. We would be able to know the wise way to act. We would have the right words. Father, we can have that in Christ with the help of the Spirit through soaking in Scripture Regardless of our educational background, you can give us that wisdom. Father, I've known men and women who didn't have much education. I know they didn't graduate high school. I know they didn't have much education. And they were very wise. And they knew the right word to say. And they had the right demeanor and the right tone. And they struck the right tone at the right time because they'd been with the Lord and they'd been in your word and they had over not just the Spirit being yielded to the Spirit and allowing the Spirit to work, but also through creating those habits of listening to Your Word. They knew the right Word at the right time in the right way so often, God. I knew one man, Lord, that died here a few years ago who couldn't talk without a terrible stutter and only made it to the sixth grade in his education. But when he would get up in the pulpit to read your word, it was like another man. He could speak clearly. He didn't pause at the words. He didn't stutter. And you used him mightily. You gave him wisdom and discernment that came from study of your word and yieldedness to your spirit. As far as I'm concerned, it was miraculous what you did in him. I ask you to do that again in us. It doesn't matter what we think about our abilities or help us to just make ourselves available, to just put ourselves in front of your word consistently. God, what if we did it a hundred times and 99 times you didn't speak to us or we didn't see it or we didn't discern it, but on the hundredth time we actually heard the voice of God speaking to us. It would have been worth the 99 times. My experience says it won't be like that. There are times when I read and pray and I don't feel especially holy. I don't learn any life-changing truth in that moment that I can discern. But more often than not, God, I sit down with your word and it directs my path that very day. Or it provides me with a word that I'm going to need to give somebody else this week. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to push away the plates and push away the TVs and the social medias and the hobbies and the hunting and the fishing and the shopping and the other stuff enough, even the sleeping. Push it away enough to be able to spend some quality time with you and your word. I pray, Lord, that that would be be so, that your spirit would draw us and convict us to it. Again, Father, I ask you to heal Connie tonight. I ask you to heal these that are sick, these that have children that are ill tonight. Lord, I pray you'll minister to those little ones, God, relieve their pain, and keep these people safe as they travel and go their separate ways. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Amen.